gospel is a theological biography. It, we can't hold it to the standards of a current biography, but things are arranged sometimes in thematic order or subject order. It brings along parables and miracle narratives and all these things together to give us a glimpse into who Jesus was. Well, the key idea in the gospels we said last week was the kingdom of of God. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's more about God's power than it is a place. It's more about a reign than it is a realm. So we were looking at uh, the parables and knowing that they have one major intent or one major teaching and well like the, the prodigal son the main theme is that God is a gracious forgiver and we too should be gracious forgivers but then we can look and say that the older son is a pharisee who thinks he's got everything right and the younger son is the humble uh, sinner and the father is god and you can put some other pieces uh, together well tonight we come to three last genres or types of literature in the new testament and the first one is the genre of acts if a gospel is a theological biography, then the idea here, this is a theological history. If the gospel is a theo theological biography, then Acts is a theological history. Things are arranged about time and events and people and places, but they are arranged around a theological motif within the book of Acts. Now, Acts, the good news about this particular theological history is Acts is actually the only one exactly like that that we have uh, in the New Testament. So it's not like four gospels or multiple letters or epistles. There's only one genre of Acts. So we can just call it the genre of Acts. Now, the title that was assigned to it early was the Acts of the Apostles. I might argue that it could be retitled the Acts of Peter and Paul. You don't hear a lot from the other apostles. There are two apostles that are taking center stage. There are some deacons that help along the way with Stephen and Philip. But the main idea here is that which happens to Peter early on and then towards the end of Acts, that which happens to Paul. We'll turn to Acts chapter 1. We'll look at a few things and get you set to be able to interpret this genre of theological history. One of the main things, if you're remembering the Gospels, you remember that the repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The arrival of Jesus means the arrival of the kingdom of God. In the Acts of the Apostles, or the Acts of Peter and Paul, you might say the main theme here or do not forget about Pentecost. That is a driving factor. Everything, it begins in chapter 2 with the pouring out of the Spirit of God. Then everything flows because now we have a new covenant of people of God who have actually what all had longed for in the old covenant, and that is the presence of God's Spirit upon all believers. So you really cannot overstate uh, the significance of Pentecost. Well, let's look at uh, Acts 1.1. The first account I composed Theophilus, Theophilus, a name that means lover of God, about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he presented himself 
alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of things, here it is, concerning the kingdom of God. Well, then he goes on to tell us, look at verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the remotest part of the earth. So we have this theological history, and we need to remember uh, that the pouring out of the Spirit changed absolutely everything, changed absolutely everything. Well, here's some principles to bear in mind when you are interpreting Acts. First of all, uh, remember that it is in Acts that we have these sermons by the apostles, especially by the apostle Peter. I've argued before, and I think it's a great insight, that before Matthew existed, or Mark existed, or John existed, before uh, even Luke existed in the gospel form, we have these sermons by Peter and other apostles that tell us what it is that the apostles believe. What did the apostles teach? I call that the apostles' theology. And if you want to say, what's the core of the New Testament? It is found in these sermons by Peter. It's called the apostles' theology. The apostles' theology contains things like this. Hey, all this stuff happening by this rabbi Jesus, this was foretold by the old prophets. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. This is fulfilling of prophecy. And then they'll say something like, God has acted in Rabbi Jesus for our salvation. He's particularly acted in the crucifixion of Jesus and in his glorious resurrection. You meant it for evil, God made it good. God raised him from the dead. And then they'll say something like, if you'll repent and be baptized, then this kingdom of God is available to you. Repent and be baptized, the kingdom of God is available to you. And if you repent and be baptized, then you'll receive what was promised by the prophets, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There it is. There's kind of Peter's sermon. Well, look over at Acts chapter 2, where we sort of meet one of these sermons by, by Peter in Acts uh, chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk, as you suppose. Remember, we have the fiery tongues and everybody is hearing the gospel in their own language. And Peter says they are not drunk. And then he tells us, verse 17, that this, verse 16, this was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth my spirit upon all humankind. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. So he begins by telling us, don't be surprised at what you see. For this was prophesied by Joel, this pouring out of the spirit. Verse 22, men of Israel... Listen to these words, Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up predetermined plan for knowledge of God. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held 
in its power. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again, which we are witnesses, therefore he is exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so you, you hear this sermon, and look what they say, in, he says in verse 38, repent and be baptized. Well, there it is. There's the apostle's theology. The prophets are being fulfilled. God is at work in this person, Jesus. God was not surprised by the crucifixion. God had foreordained the crucifixion. And not only did he die, you meant evil, but God raised you from the dead. And the spirit is with us. And what do you need to do? You need to repent and be baptized. Well, there's the apostles' theology right there. So when I'm reading Acts, I remember about these great sermons by Peter it happens again in chapter 3. This is chapter 2. It happens again in chapter 3. It happens again. If you'll just read these and know that is the core of the Gospels and that these sermons were preached by Peter before anyone penned uh, the first jot or tittle of a Gospel. This is the earliest church on the day of Pentecost. People gathered in Jerusalem preaching the Gospel, and this is what the Gospel was to the apostles. That's the apostles' theology. So I bear in mind in Acts, that's my theological core. Another thing I like to do when I'm reading Acts, turn over to chapter 16. When I'm reading Acts, I like to remember that they relate to the epistles written by Paul. So Acts helps me interpret the epistles of Paul and the epistles of Paul help me interpret Acts. You see that? For like example, in Acts chapter 16, we have Paul having a Macedonia vision and he is called uh, to go to Macedonia and he wants to go elsewhere and the spirit says no and he goes to Macedonia, sees a man saying, come over here and help us. And when he gets to Macedonia, he wants to go to the synagogue and finds out there is no synagogue and so well, he goes down to the river, and there at the river, Acts 16, 14, he finds a certain woman named Lydia who is a seller of purple dye or purple goods, and Lydia is saved, and Lydia's whole household is saved. And then there's a story of the servant girl who's uh, predicting the future, and they use her something as a fortune teller to make money, and the demon keeps aggravating Paul. I know who you are, uh, the servant of the Most High God. And um, then she is cast out by, cast out by Paul. And then as we go through, the, uh, Paul is prisoned, and he's in the middle of the jail. They're singing hymns at night, and Paul and Silas, and there's an earthquake, and they escape from the deepest stocks, the center of the jail. And the Philippian jailer runs in and says, the prisoners, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to be saved? And the Philippian jailer and his whole household are baptized. Now, what's that got to do with Paul's epistles? Well, when I read the letter to the church at Philippi, I know why they're giving so much money. Because Lydia's selling purple. You see how they relate? Lydia makes money selling purple, and she's funding the ministry. Not to say others aren't too. And then I know that the congregation is diverse, that I've got Lydia, and I've got her family that were baptized in that church. And we also had the Philippian jailer. We have his family. You have a, a woman that was cast out by a demon. This becomes Paul's favorite church. So if you'll follow Paul's missionary journeys in the latter part of Acts, then when he starts a church, you can go back and see 
Well, I'll go over and read his letter to, to Corinth. In fact, I had a pastor friend who went through Acts, and every time he got to a, per, a church started by Paul, he would go over and teach that book. Of course, they never got through. He'd go over and teach that book, and then he, he would come back. And so he wove together the missionary journeys of Paul, the birth of these churches with the letters that were written back to the churches and, and helped his congregation understand the epistles through looking through Acts. So remember that these churches are started in Acts and then the letters come from Paul later in the epistles. So relate them together. So if you're reading Philippi, I'd say, I'm going to go back and read Acts 16. Well, how did that church get started? And who started it? And you can uh, do that with the churches. Back to Acts chapter 1. Another thing I do when I'm, I'm reading Acts is I, I read Acts 1.8 as my thematic verse. We did this when we studied Acts, but this is Jesus talking. You shall re receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. If you go through Acts, what happens? The gospel starts in Jerusalem, then it goes out to Judea, then it goes through Samaria, and then it goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. So if you're reading Acts, circle that, star that. You, that, that summarizes the book right there in one verse. And that gives you the chronological order of the spreading of the gospel. One last thing for Acts. Do not forget that Acts is actually volume two. Have you ever watched a movie and you watched the wrong one first? Now, well, some of these movies, they go back and forth. You know, the next one is before time and all that. That gets way above my head. When the sci-fi start doing that, check me out. I'm not going back in time and forward in time. I, I can't do it. But remember, you need, or someone will say, if you didn't see the first movie, you're not going to get the second movie, right? If you didn't see the first one, it, it builds. You, you can't just start in the middle of the series. Well, remember that Acts is the second part of a series. And that the first book by Luke is Luke, right? And so really a good exercise might be just study Luke-Acts. There's a, a segment of the New Testament written by one person. You could see his stylistic differences. You could see his idiosyncrasies. You could see his themes. Like if you read Luke-Acts, one theme you'll see is the spreading of the gospel to the Gentiles. You'll see that in Luke-Acts. Or if you read Gospel of Luke and Acts, you will see emphasis on the Holy Spirit. You certainly see it in Acts too, but you also see a little more Holy Spirit in Luke than you might see in some of the, the other gospels. So you could read Luke-Acts together and realize it's volume one and volume two. In fact, there are, is some evidence that Luke and Acts actually traveled together as one in the churches when they were being read and they were together. So Acts is just a second part of the Luke-Acts which uh, go together, and so it's good to read them together. In fact, I've been told, I've not counted, I've been told if you take Luke and Acts together, you have the majority of the New Testament compared even to Paul's 13 epistles. In other words, if you added up all of Paul's 13 letters, Luke still writes more than New Testament if you add Luke and Acts together. True or not, it's debatable, it's close, but the reality is you just do Luke-Acts, you've got a good gospel, you've got a good history, and you've got probably... Uh, the most prolific writer in the New Testament right there 
in Luke Acts. So, a theological history that instructs us in the beginning of the church, and uh, remember to read it uh, carefully. Well, the next one is, after Acts, is an epistle, a letter. Here's what a letter is. If you can get this in your mind, then you can understand how to read an epistle. An epistle happens when we have an occasion or a problem in a church, and we have the apostle's theology, what Peter or Paul would preach, and we have an occasion that needs the application of the apostle's theology to the occasion or to the problem. Are you following me? For example, in Corinth, you've got a lot of problems, right? You've got a, a disorderly Lord's Supper. That's an occasion. You've got church members suing church members. That's an occasion. You've got women saying, I don't need my husband anymore and throwing all off the family structure and, uh, and, and finding all sorts of liberty in the gospel. That's an occasion. You have some people eating meat sacrificed to idol, this offending other people. We could go on and on. That's an occasion. So you've got a lot of problems in the city of Corinth, right? You see that? Well, all 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is is an application of this apostle's theology that the story of Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, that God was working in the death and resurrection, the ascension, the enthronement, and the return of Christ, that if you repent and be baptized, you will be saved, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's the core. That core meets the specific problems of a community, and you end up with a letter. Now, if Paul could be there at all these places, he would just address them when he's preaching uh, the, the gospel, but he couldn't be there. And so a substitute for his presence, remember this, an epistle or a letter is a substitute for the apostle's personal presence. When he couldn't be there, he wrote a letter. And so if Paul were there, you give people the basics and they say, yeah, but what about this? We got some people who are showing up early and they're having lunch while the workers are in the field and they're, they're drunk on the Lord's Supper by the time the workers come in and all the chicken wings are gone and it's not working out and, and what do we do? And then they have a fight. Well, he's suing me. Don't you see. And then Paul will take the core of what Jesus taught about the kingdom of God and apply it to the specifics of that city's or that church's problems and therefore, good apostle theology meets the problems of the new church equals an epistle. That's what's happening. So, when you read an epistle, you've got to recreate the occasion. What is it that's going on in that city that led for the application of the theology of the apostles to this event? Here's the problem. Have you ever listened to one side of a telephone conversation? Come on, you've eavesdropped before. You listen to one side of a telephone conversation, and you try to build back what's going on. Well, a lot of sitcoms are based on this, right? Somebody's eavesdropping. They listen to one side of the conversation. They build the wrong occasion in their mind, and that's the comedic line throughout the whole sitcom is they thought it meant this, but they only heard one. Well, all we have is all we can hear is Paul talking to them. We can't hear them talking to Paul. How did they talk to Paul? They sent messengers and said, we're worried. 
our grandmothers have died and Christ has not returned. And what are we going to do? Because grandma said Jesus was Lord. And when he came back with his full kingdom, we knew she'd be in the kingdom of God. But now, well, grandmother's in the grave. She's in the tomb. And when Jesus comes back, we're not sure she's going to make it. What are we supposed to do? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4, 12. I don't want you to be unknowing, brethren, about those who are asleep. I don't want you to grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For the trumpet of God, the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's how I know they were worried about Grandma. You see, Paul had only been in their city for a well, about 20 days, maybe to 30 days, three Sabbaths, somewhere in there. So he'd been there for less than a month, and he convinced them that this rabbi Jesus was the Messiah, but he told them he's coming again, and don't worry, and they thought he's coming before anybody died, and then their family members started dying, and so there you go. So if someone brings the questions to Paul, Paul takes the parchment in hand, applies the apostles' theology to the problems, a uh, scholar calls it occasion. They don't like to say problem, to the occasion in Corinth. And thus we have the production of an epistle. Well, the epistles have basically two parts. As he applies the apostles' theology to the occasion or problems of the church, we end up with two major sections in every epistle. The first part is theological. The last part is how to behave or ethical. You ever been reading along an epistle and all of a sudden get to the end and Paul's just spitting off things, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. Why did he get in such a hurry? Maybe he's running out of parchment. I don't know. He gets to the end. He starts giving commands, do this, don't do that. So that's the ethical side or the behavioral side. He starts out with what you should believe and then he ends the epistles with ethics or how you should behave. And so that, that helps us. Now, here's the other thing. We have to ask ourselves how much of the occasion is for that particular church, for that particular time, or how much of it is a theological truth for all times. You, you following me? And Corinth, that we're not going to uh, solve the whole, I'm not here to address the issue of, of women in ministry tonight, but there's a, an, an occasion in, in uh, Corinthians where is it the Corinthian women who found liberation in Christ and therefore they're breaking the household code and therefore they are given all sorts of restrictions because they're disrupting worship or does that mean all women of all time? You see, those are two different interpretations of the text and I think it's the Corinthian women and not all women of all time. But that's something you have to do as a reader. Is this for this occasion only or is it for all places and all, all times? Well, one other thing. The epistles start out like a, any letter of antiquity. They start out with the sender, Paul, an apostle. We don't tell who writes our letters to the very end. Paul, an apostle. Now, Email has kind of gone back to the letter of antiquity. It tells us right there, sender, doesn't it? Unless they have a code name or something up there, you know who the sender is. So we know sender, we know receiver, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the church at Corinth. And then we have a greeting, grace and peace to you 
And that was just the old style doing a letter, grace and peace to you. And then you have a thanksgiving. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Or I thank God because your faith is growing. Or I thank God because your reputation is known throughout Christendom. It's a, a thanksgiving. So then it means something when in Galatians there is no thanksgiving. You're reading along and go, well, there's the sender, Paul. There's the recipient. The church is in Galatia. There's the grace and peace. So I know what's coming next, the thanksgiving. There's not one. Why? Because Paul's not thankful for the Galatian churches. He's mad at them. Or if in 1 Thessalonians you get two thanksgivings, that means something too, you see. So if you know the order of a letter of antiquity, then that tells you pretty much where we're going from there. Now, within these epistles, you do have some repetitive things that show themselves over and over again. Turn to Philippians uh, chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. These are some little subtypes within the epistles. Sometimes in the epistles, you'll have a creed, or Dan would call it and Parker would call it a hymn, uh, where it is perhaps something that was taught by the church over and over again and perhaps set to music. So when you're reading Philippians and all of a sudden it sounds like a beautiful poem or a beautiful hymn, perhaps indeed that it is. Philippians 2, uh, as you're reading Philippians 2, uh, in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus. Then in verse 6, it starts sounding like a hymn. Who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess you, you see, it sounds like a hymn. This sounds like something they'd memorized. And so Paul is writing along in Philippians. He rem rem remembers this hymn of Christ, and he begins to quote this hymn. And so sometimes we have these ancient hymns, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, 1 Timothy 3. Sounds like Paul is borrowing or lifting from a hymn. Another thing is sometimes we have domestic codes. Sometimes we have a domestic code like Ephesians chapter 5 where we are told how everyone is to behave in the household of God. It might be servants, it might be masters, and indeed it might be men, husbands, wives. And so these are called domestic codes. So we have hymns repeated sometimes. We have domestic codes in Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 2, Colossians 3, these domestic codes. Another often seen subtype in epistle is a vice and a virtue list. A vice and a virtue list. You think about Galatians. Turn over to uh, Galatians 5.19. In Galatians 5.19, you have a, a vice and virtue list. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, all things like these of which I forewarn you, just as you have forewarned you that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is. 
And there we have the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. The vice and virtue list. Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, James 3, 2 Peter 1. So there you have an epistle. The epistle is theology and ethics. What to believe and how to behave. If that's better for you, what to believe and how to behave. And it, there's an occasion or a problem or a question in the church, and you have to decide, is this just for them or is this for all churches and all times? And then Paul will take this rich theology that Peter would preach on the day of Pentecost and apply it to the occasion and solve the problem for the Corinthians. In fact, it is held by many, in fact, some evidence in his letters that Paul might have been a better writer than he was preacher. And therefore, not only was the epistle a substitute for his presence, it might have been his very best presence. You ever had a, a popular preacher, you like to read their books, and then you go hear them preach and go, well, I like reading the book better. Paul might have been like that. I like reading the book better. Well, you're in luck because you got 13 of them and you can go read the books. One more, apocalyptic literature. So we have Gospels, theological biographies. We have the Acts of the Apostles, or I would argue, argue the Acts of Peter and Paul, theological history. We have Epistles when Apostles' theology meets the problem. And now we last have apocalyptic literature. Now, the book of Revelation in the Old Testament would be something like Daniel. John Calvin said, I don't know what to do with this book. And he wrote a commentary on almost every book, but he chose not to write a commentary on the book of Revelation. For good cause, it's a very difficult book. Well, let me give you some characteristics. If you know something apocalyptic, think Daniel, think Revelation. Now, again, I'm, I'm dealing with the New Testament here, but these characteristics would apply to Daniel as well as it would apply, or the second part of Daniel as well as it would apply to all of Revelation really, and that is it deals with in-world events. It deals with in-world events. This cosmic battle between good and evil and the nations and the evil kings of the nations against God and God's powers, and so it deals with the end, often the end of world history. Secondly, these apocalyptic works or revelation works often have visions and dreams. Visions and dreams. And that makes them hard because what's reality? What's vision? What's a dream? Sometimes in Daniel, it's hard to tell when's he starting on a new vision and when's he having a dream. Visions and dreams. Another thing you have in apocalyptic literature is a lot of numbers. If you want to use the technical word, gematria. It's a lot of numbers and finding out what the numbers mean and trying to figure out the, the meaning of those numbers on this occasion in this book. Sometimes in apocalyptic literature, you have otherworldly creatures. You might have uh, a locust with a woman's hair. You might have all sorts of, of dragons or uh, or 
scary statues in Daniel, you have these odd creatures that seem to represent the parts of different animals. And they come together in a very bizarre and scary way. Apocalyptic literature wants to talk about the past, the present, and the future. Apocalyptic literature wants to talk about the past, the present, and then tell you the ultimate future. But you have to remember, it does deal with the past. It certainly has to be relevant to the hearer in the first century. If revelation doesn't mean something to a first century believer, then it doesn't mean anything to anyone. So it has to be written for that original audience. So it does deal with the present. It is not all future, uh, to be sure. There's a lot of symbolism, a lot of figurative language. Now, sometimes it's easy. Like in Revelation 1, where you're told that the stars are angels or messengers. And the lampstands, Revelation 1.20, are churches. That the dragons, the devil, 12.9, and the bowls of incense, 5.8, are the prayers of the saints. The ten horns are ten kings, 17.12, and the... That the great prostitute is a city that rules over the kings of the earth, 17. So it's all good when John is spelling out what the symbols mean. And then he takes you so far and says, well, I'm not going to tell you these. And that's when, well, that's when the train comes off the tracks. And that's when we start debating and arguing and trying to figure out all of this. Well, here's the rules for dealing with apocalyptic literature. First of all, please exercise some humility Whatever chart you might manufacture, it is one way to read the book. Whatever I might manufacture as my position is simply one way to read the book. Historically, the church has read it a lot of different ways. And the way you're reading it might even be a, a recent way. There may be other ways that church fathers read it. In fact, through history, there's been all kind, of, and I won't go through the technical names, the pre's and the post and the ah's, but through, the church has read it in all those different ways through all of history. So whether it's me or it's you, take a real good dose of humility before you tell your class this is exactly what it means. If John Calvin didn't want to touch it, then you might address it with a little humility when you, when you come to it. Not that Calvin and I would agree about everything. We would not. Secondly, remember to, to read it figuratively. Most things are symbols, symbolic. And so when you insist that something must be literal, be very careful when you're dealing with a whole world of symbolism. It's sort of like this. If it's 1989, anybody old enough to remember 1989? Most of you are old enough to remember 1989. If it's 1989 and you see a cartoon in an American newspaper, it's a picture of a large bear extending out an olive branch to a bald eagle. You know what that means? It's a bear, it's Russia. The bald eagle is America. The olive branch is an overture towards peace, right? Think of apocalyptic cheer that way. It's, a, it's something of a symbolic, and if you know the symbols, you get it. And if you don't, now years down the road, it may be hard to know that the bear is Russia or the bald eagle is America. But think of it that way, that it is figurative and it means something, but have to read carefully to figure it out. 
Next, remember there's a historical basis. This letter was written for us, yes, but written first and foremost for an audience in the first century, and it had to mean something to a persecuted church who's been persecuted by the worldly and evil powers, and what does it mean to someone in the first century, and how would they read the symbols? Now, turn to Revelation 4 and 5. We've got 3 minutes and 45 seconds. I shall not go over Aren't you so thankful for that countdown clock more than once? Whether it's Daniel or Revelation, think about the main message. People spend way too much time chasing the minutia. It's okay. I've written a commentary on Daniel, and I chased it all. But I, I did not need to forget in writing it all. The main thing is God calls for the rise and fall of nations. God is absolutely in control. There it is. There's the nucleus. When you're reading Revelation, read Revelation 4 and 5 before you start. Read it in the middle. Read it when you're over. This is the key. That they're in heaven. They're waiting for someone around the throne of God who can unleash the will and the way and the power of God. These seven seals and, well, there's no one worthy. And so John weeps because there's no one worthy. And he, he cries and they tell him to, to stop crying because there's someone who is worthy. There is a lamb, the lamb that has been slain, and the lamb is worthy. Verse 9, they sing a new song saying, Worthy is the lamb to take the book and break its seals. For thou wast slain, thou didst purchase for God with thy blood men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation that has made them to be a kingdom of priests to God and they will reign upon the earth and the angels exalt the lamb and worthy is the lamb verse 12 to him who sits on the throne of the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped that's it there it is you can chase the other stuff and you should but do it with humility but it's about God being powerful enough to win. The one who's on the throne and the angel and the, and the lamb who is slain has paid the price and he is worthy. So read Revelation 4 and 5 and remember, it's not that confusing. We win in the end. We win because the lamb was slain. He's worthy to set forth the way and the will of God and the people of God win in the end. Humility, symbolism, historical basis. You know, the problem with reading Revelation is every generation thinks it's just about them. Well, you know, we won't read it and say, well, that's, that's all lining up with what we're doing right here. Well, they thought that, you know, every generation thinks that. That's not all bad because every generation needs to be ready for him to come. But just be humble enough to realize that there's been a lot of millennia of Christians, and it was a group in the first century to whom this was written, and it needs to line up a whole lot with them when you read it. And then finally, remember, the main message is the main message. We're on the right side. The Lamb is worthy. We will worship Him, and the creatures are going to say amen. The elders are going to fall down, and we're going to worship. And you know, I think when we get to heaven, nobody's going to say, hey, I told you I was right. We might all be wrong except for chapter 4 and 5, when we say, you know what? God is worthy. The lamb was slain, 
and those who follow him inherit the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Oh God, thank you for such a rich New Testament with such a variety of literature that can capture all of our heart but also capture all of our mind. May we rightly handle and divide your word. In Jesus' name, amen.